Digital Zenith Podcast, PC gaming discussion, analysis, and culture. Episode 2 of the Digital Zenith Podcast. Thanks for joining me again. As I said in my first podcast, this episode is all about ID software slash ID tech, past, present, and future. And the reason that I wanted to do a podcast dedicated to ID tech is because of the recent popularity of their engine with games such as The Evil Within, which was built on ID tech, Wolfenstein The New Order, and of course, Doom 2016, which was an incredible title, both in single-player gameplay and engine capability. And I just thought it would be a great time to dedicate an episode to that because there's a lot of exciting things that have happened, and there's even more exciting things on the horizon as it relates to the ID Tech engine. It's also worth talking about because a lot of the key people that were involved in the early days that actually built ID software from the ground up aren't there anymore. In fact, the majority of them are gone. You've got new people at the helm with new ideas that are doing exciting things with those IPs. What we're going to do is we're going to start out for a little while talking about how ID Tech formed, what were their first games, why is what they did so important, why was it so revolutionary for the gaming industry, We're going to talk about the engines, we're going to talk about how they distributed their games, etc. For those of you who know, or for those of you that don't, the three key people involved with starting ID Software were John Romero, John Carmack, and Adrian Carmack. No relation to between the Carmacks, by the way. John Romero and John Carmack back in the late 80s, were working at the same place together, as well as Adrian. The company was called SoftDisk. For those of you that have been gaming for a long time, you can remember the days where you would have a magazine subscription. With that magazine subscription, you would get a disc shipped to you with the magazine. And on that disc, there would be software and game demos, and in some cases, full games. Well, that's more or less what SoftDisk was. It was a it was a magazine dedicated to personal computers. They thought it would be a good idea to ship out a disc that would have different games on it. And John Carmack and John Romero and Adrian Carmack were responsible for producing a lot of the content that was shipped on those discs. And you have to remember the climate at the time as it relates to gaming. It was the 80s. It was the time of Nintendo and, you know, Sega and Super NES were on the horizon. The PC was kind of overlooked as far as games were concerned. Um, as I said in my previous cast, I started gaming in the 80s, and the games for PC back then were really quite simplistic. I mentioned that I used to play some of the Sierra Quest games, and most games were built similar to that. You would have a single rendered scene on your screen that you could walk around in and give instructions like, you know, pick up this, drop that, pull the lever, whatever. And then when you went into the edge of this, when you went to the edge of the screen with your character, then a loading prompt would come up. 
it would load the next area and then you would walk into that area. The computers back then didn't have the horsepower, believe it or not, ironically, to have a smooth side-scrolling game like the consoles did, like Super Mario Brothers. The PC didn't have that. You were loading one screen at a time, or the entire game took place in you know something like Pac-Man, where one screen, it's a maze-like area, and you just move your character around, jump, dodge, whatever. Very, very simplistic, and to be completely honest and to be quite frank, the console was probably the place to be back in the 80s if, if you were playing games. However, Carmack and Romero saw the potential in PC gaming. They thought to themselves, you know, consoles can't do what PCs can do as far as productivity and things like that. And PCs can play some games. So if we can figure out a way to code games so that they can be competitive with the console games, then we'd really have something on our hands. And that's more or less what they set out to do in their spare time was overcome the obstacles that PCs had in order to create games that were on the same level as the console games. So this is where the genius of John Carmack came in first. He developed a way to create a smooth side-scrolling game that could play on the PC, which hadn't necessarily been seen before. And he did this by not completely rendering every single area as you moved, but only rendering the things that changed from area to area and using the rest as more or less a backdrop. In order to prove that this would work on a grand scale, what they actually did is he he made a complete port of Super Mario 3, the first level of Super Mario 3, as proof of concept. John Romero came in to work one day and there was a disc on his desk. He popped it in and he played and he couldn't believe what he saw. He It was almost a pixel for pixel recreation of the first level of Super Mario 3 that he could play on the PC, smooth as can be, just like you would play it on the Nintendo. And that's when they knew that they really had something going. So their first instinct was to reach out to Nintendo directly and basically pitch a PC port of the Mario series. So they sent them their pixel-for-pixel recreation of the first level of Mario 3, thinking that Nintendo would come back and say, wow, this is amazing, this is brilliant, we're all in. And really, to no surprise, in hindsight, they turned them down. They wanted Mario to remain on Nintendo only. And that's still an attitude that they have to this day, more or less. At this point, they didn't really know what to do. But there was a man named Scott Miller that formed a company called Apogee Software. He knew of the group because he was a big fan of one of John Romero's soft disc games called Dangerous Dave. Previously, he had actually contacted Romero, pretending to be a fan, to try and set up a meeting. And the reason he pretended to be a fan was because he knew he wouldn't be able to reach out directly as the head of Apogee Software because Softdisk wouldn't even allow him to get through and set up a meeting or speak to him because they were very protective of their coders at the time. Now, Scott's function with Apogee Software was basically the shareware model. And for those of you that don't know, basically how it worked was 
they would have a game where you could play, say, the first level or the first however many minutes. It was a demo, more or less. After you played the demo, there would be an advertisement at the end saying, you know, did you enjoy this game? If so, here's how you can purchase it, so on and so forth. Uh, I kind of wish the games industry still worked that way because you wouldn't have to pay for beta access or deal with all this pre-order nonsense. So what Scott wanted to do was he saw the talent in Romero. He wanted to get Romero's games distributed through his shareware method so that they could all make more money. And after Carmack created this side-scrolling engine where they could make games that were competitive with the console... Romero then reached back out to Scott Miller and said, hey, you know, remember me? We've got this amazing side-scrolling game, and we want to distribute it using your methods. So after Scott Miller saw the Mario demo that they made, he, he knew that they had hit the jackpot there. And that's when they agreed to create something together that was all original, and that's when Commander Keen was born. John Carmack, Adrian Carmack, John Romero, in their spare time, nights, weekends, they actually used the computers at Softdisk to create this all-original IP called Commander Keen, and they released it on December 14th of 1990. It was not sold in stores at the time. It was done through the shareware method. People would download a demo, play it, and then they would have the option to purchase the full game at the end. And using this method of distribution, back in 1990, mind you, they did $30,000 in sales in the first 10 days. I mean, think about that for a second. That's impre- that would be impressive today for just a small group of guys creating a game and selling it without any advanced distribution methods or the backing of a publisher, etc., etc. So long before the days of Doom and Wolfenstein... This is what they were accomplishing, and I, and I think that it can't be overstated how impressive it really was. For those of you that are actually interested in Commander Keen and what it was and what it looked like and how it played, you can buy it on Steam. I think it's $4.99 most of the time for shits and giggles. I played it not too long ago, and it runs great. And it's fun for what it is, but you know you got to remember it's a 26-year-old game, so... So, moving on, what we should probably start talking about is how they got involved in 3D engine creation, because as I just got done talking about, Commander Keen and most of the things they had worked on thus far were either simple one-screen games or, in the case of Commander Keen, side-scrollers. Even when they were distributing and selling Commander Keen and making all this money, they were still working for Softdisk, and they were still under contract. The first 3D FPS that these guys made was actually a game called Hover Tank was the first, and that was followed up by Catacomb 3D. Now, these were made and distributed via Softdisk. So... Let's bring Scott Miller back into the discussion. Scott Miller took a look at Catacomb and wanted a similar game to distribute. So they all got together and they tossed around all these different ideas. And what they settled on was making the first Wolfenstein. I'm pretty sure everybody listening is familiar with what Wolfenstein is. But you have to remember, when they were creating the first Wolfenstein, 
it was more or less the first game that had a lot of blood and gore. Uh, if you look and play the original, when you're shooting guys, there's sprays of blood coming off of them. When you kill the Mecha Hitler, he just kind of disintegrates into a pile of guts and blood and bones. And those types of things weren't seen back then. Games back then were very sterile, I guess is the word that I would use. There wasn't a lot of blood. There wasn't a lot of guts. It, there wasn't a lot of really edgy, intense music. It was all it was all very sedate, to be honest. Just to stray off the path here for just a moment to further drive my point home, think about when Mortal Kombat was released on the consoles. The Super Nintendo version had no blood whatsoever. It was just deemed too offensive to have any blood showing on the screen like it was in the arcade. And the Genesis version was the same way. There was no blood unless you put in a special code at the beginning that would unlock all of the blood. I mean, that's by today's standards, that just seems absolutely silly, but that was the way things were back then. So these guys come along and they start making these games with all this blood and gore and uh, demonic themes, and uh, it was revolutionary back then because nobody else was really doing it. Sorry for that little rant. Let's get back on topic. We were talking about Wolfenstein. They create Wolfenstein. They finished it in 1992, and they used the same distribution method. It was released uh, May 5th. Now, with all the success that Commander Keen had had, they saw exponentially more success with Wolfenstein. Wolfenstein brought in an average of $200,000 a month through their digital distribution method back then. $200,000 a month back in 1992. That's completely insane. So to follow up on that, they had created an expansion for Wolfenstein called Spear of Destiny, which was released the same year, I believe. But, you know, for all the success that Wolfenstein had, and despite the fact that it was one of the very first FPSs that kind of kick-started the genre, it was very, very basic. Uh, those of you that have played it, if you recall, there were no different levels. Everything was on the same plane. You just kind of walked in and out of rooms, and yes, there were some secret doors and passages, but it was very, very simplistic, and... Carmack, being the innovator that he was, uh, wanted to code an engine where you could get beyond that and you could go up and down stairs and things like this to add complexity to the environment. And that's when they came up with the idea of creating Doom. And he had already started working on the engine before they even finished Spear of Destiny. And he accomplished what he set out to do. Doom was a huge leap in terms of uh, the game environment. So instead of one flat surface, maps had multiple levels. Uh, in addition, they also introduced the concept of skyboxes. There was no outdoor environments in Wolfenstein, but in Doom you could actually go outside and look up and you could see different um, skyboxes. There was also different levels of lighting depending upon where you were in the map. And there was varied geometry. Instead of just having everything be a right angle, you actually had a lot of different variety in the environment because that limitation was overcome. Now, 
all of that would have been enough to make Doom a success. But what I think really made Doom spread like wildfire was the fact that it was the first game to allow local four-player deathmatch. This game actually coined that term. That was the first time I believe that that term was ever used as a game mode. So it wasn't allowed over the internet. Like I said, it was local only. But that's what made this game so popular on college campuses. Students would go into the computer labs, load up Doom, and just play deathmatch all night long against each other. So in my opinion... Not only can you thank ID Software for coining the term deathmatch, but you can also thank ID Software for giving us the medium to have the first LAN parties, which is something that, in my opinion, truly defines PC gaming. And they took note of this. They saw how popular it was, this deathmatch mode that allowed these people to play together on a local area network, and they wanted to take that to the next level In addition to that, they also knew and they also understood that for all its advancements over Wolfenstein, Doom, at the end of the day, still wasn't a true three-dimensional game. As the player in first person, you couldn't look up or down. Yes, enemies might have been on different levels, but all you had to do was aim in their general direction and the bullets would travel to the enemy. You weren't actually aiming on a vertical plane. And in addition to that, excuse me, the enemies weren't truly 3D either. They were just 2D sprites. So the goal for the next engine and the goal for the next game was to not only expand upon this idea of four-player local deathmatch, but to create a truly 3D engine. And that's exactly what they did. So in 1996, the Quake engine was born. It was the first true 3D engine that pre-processed and pre-rendered the environment. The player could look in any direction, up, down, left, right, fire in those directions. The enemies were actually three-dimensional models rather than 2D sprites. Now you have to remember in 1996, uh, this was before, this was just preceding the video card revolution. So PCs were still more or less underpowered Uh, They knew this, Carmack knew this, so they did something else rather revolutionary. They were able to decrease the workload of the 3D rendering to the computer by sectioning off large regions of the map that weren't actually visible to the player. This allowed them to keep the gameplay smooth, even on modest machines, and it allowed them to create very, very large maps. So, in addition to having this fully realized 3D environment, they also upped the ante when it came to multiplayer gaming. Rather than in Doom only having up to four people on a local area network play, this allowed up to 16 players to play online. And I know I don't have to drive the point home with all of you listening with just how important that was and just how revolutionary it was. Now, instead of having to use a college's computer lab to play or lugging your computer around and trying to connect it on a local area network, you could just frag with your friends online up to 16 players. And if all of that isn't amazing enough, the soundtrack to the first Quake game was done by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. 
Trent was a huge fan of Doom, and ID Software had actually reached out to him and asked him if he would be interested in creating a soundtrack for this new game that they were creating, and Trent jumped at the opportunity. And if you haven't listened to it, I recommend just doing a quick search and giving it a listen. Uh, Like I said earlier, a lot of games years ago, there wasn't a lot of blood or gore or demonic themes, and this game introduced all of that. And in addition to that, Trent provided a extremely dark ambient soundtrack, and it all fit together very, very well. So I recommend checking that out if you have a chance. This was all introduced on June 22nd of 1996. This was actually when ID Software realized that we have this amazing engine. Other people are interested in this engine, and that's when engine licensing was more or less born. Uh, They licensed the use of the engine out to other companies so that they wouldn't have to build engines from scratch for the games that they were making. And plus, at this point in time, ID Tech was so far ahead of everybody else as far as game engines and capability goes, it just made sense to do so. This first Quake engine is uh, actually the engine that Valve licensed to make a little game called Half-Life. And one more thing interesting to, to mention about the Quake engine in 1996 was it was the first engine that was able to truly demonstrate the capabilities of hardware acceleration. Although the game, when released, only supported software rendering, later on they did release an OpenGL version, which allowed the use of 3D graphics cards. And some believe that this game alone is what kickstarted the 3D graphics card revolution. Uh, it was one of the first games that could truly demonstrate the capabilities of some of the first cards like the 3DFX Voodoo chipset. Uh, the hardware acceleration allowed for texture filtering, better lighting, smoother gameplay. And after seeing all of these benefits, gamers just wanted more and better. So it cannot be understated how important this engine and its advancements were for modern PC gaming. Now, this didn't come with some negatives as well. Uh, They had an immense amount of success at this point, as you can imagine, not just from game sales, but from engine licensing, notoriety, and really fame, as it were. And shortly after Quake was released... Carmack and other members of ID actually asked John Romero to resign. They felt like the success had gotten to him. They felt like he wasn't working hard enough. He wasn't innovating anymore. He wasn't towing the line. And he eventually left. And he went on to form his own game studio called Ion Storm. After the sh- after Quake ship, that's when Romero left ID Software. And they went on to work on the next iteration of their engine for Quake 2, known as ID Tech 2. The difference between the Doom engine and the Quake engine was immense, as we just discussed. But the difference between the Quake 1 engine and the Quake 2 engine was more or less an incremental upgrade. Uh, It really only introduced uh, out-of-the-box hardware-accelerated support and some minor changes to the way lighting was calculated and performed. The only other notable changes to the engine 
were the introduction of dynamic link libraries. And the reason that they did this was not necessarily so the game could look better or perform better necessarily, but since they had so much success with licensing out their engine, they wanted to allow a way for other developers to allow modifications to the engine, but still keep the remainder of the engine's code proprietary. So that's why they decided to basically subdivide components of the engine into dynamic link libraries. This isn't something that I know a lot about, uh, this little bit of information I more or less pulled from the Quake 2 engine Wikipedia page, but I thought it was worth mentioning because you can see the direction that they're headed in. They're realizing that they can make just as much money and have just as much success with the engine alone, not necessarily creating an IP and delivering a game. So it looks to me like the majority of the work went into that piece of it rather than actual improvements for the engine itself. And while we're on that topic of licensing, uh, a couple games that appeared on the Quake 2 engine would be the first Soldier of Fortune, which was made by Raven Software. And funny enough, as I just said, John Romero was asked to leave the company. He went on to form Ion Storm, and their first release was a game called Daikatana, which was built on the Quake 2 engine. So there you have it. Other than that, I don't have a whole lot to talk about with the ID Tech 2 engine because there is so much to talk about when it comes to ID Tech 3. So we're going to move right on into that. Uh, on December 5th, 1999, Quake 3 Arena was le released. And Carmack took a more directional role in the company after Romero left, and he absolutely insisted that Quake 3 be a multiplayer-only game. That's all he wanted to focus on for Quake 3 was multiplayer. There was no single-player campaign, unlike Quake 1 and Quake 2. Now, they released this game and the new iteration of their engine at an interesting time. Because in 1999, the game Unreal Tournament was also released, and actually it released just a week prior to Quake 3 Arena. And in a lot of ways, Unreal Tournament was actually a more robust game because it had game modes that Quake didn't have, such as Capture the Flag. Um, Unreal was created by Epic, as you know, and another revolutionary thing that Epic did that ID did not was they released a mod toolkit with Unreal that more or less allowed people that weren't expert programmers to create content for the engine, which was incredibly important. So I think even though this entire podcast is more or less about ID software and the ID tech engines, I think some props have to be given to Epic for having the foresight to take that step because the more people that are creating content and the more popular engine is, the better off you are. But Let's get back to Quake 3. And sorry, by the way, I'm jumping around a little bit. I had an enormous, enormous cup of coffee before I started this. So, and I'm all excited and jacked up talking about this stuff. So my apologies if I'm jumping around a little bit, but back to Quake 3 Arena. Uh, improvements or introductions with this engine. Uh, one of the most notable would be Dynamic Shadows. It was the first engine to do so. In addition to that, it also allowed other visual features, such as 
volumetric fog, mirrors, portals, decals, uh, things like this. But most importantly, ID Tech 3 introduced the MD3 format for character models. And why this was important was because it was the first engine to more or less break models up into three different parts, parts, excuse me, which are then anchored to each other. So you would have the head, the torso, and then the legs. And this allowed animators to animate these sections independently to create more realistic player movement and smoother player movement. This is very important because it was an enormous step over the MD2 format that was introduced with ID Tech 2. And to take it a step further, the player models were also lit and shaded using their own proprietary technique at the time, which allowed colored lights from the light grid to apply to the models. You know, when you think about it, maybe it's kind of basic, but for the time it was pretty mind-blowing that a character model's shading could change based upon the environment. And since this game was multiplayer only, they did focus a lot on the networking and the net code, which had a lot of improvements over Quake 2. But something interesting on the ID Tech 3 Wikipedia page that I'm actually looking at right now, uh, because I was going to talk about it, but I couldn't remember all of the details, so I wanted to more or less read it to you. But they had a elaborate cheat protection built in called Pure Server. Quote from the Wikipedia page, Any client connecting to a pure server automatically has pure mode enabled. And while pure mode is enabled, only files within data packs can be accessed. Clients are disconnected if their data packs fail one of several integrity checks. So that's kind of neat. This this precedes Punkbuster and all those other third-party anti-cheat solutions. They were making a multiplayer-only game. They knew that cheating would be possible. And they shipped the game with a method in place to prevent that. So you have to imagine that that took up a nice chunk of development time to have that in place. Once again, the goal of ID Software being to license the engine out, some huge titles use the Quake 3 engine, as you can imagine. Some titles worth mentioning would be Medal of Honor Allied Assault, the first Call of Duty, and 2001's Return to Castle Wolfenstein. Uh, The interesting thing about ID Tech 3, when it comes to single-player games, was the engine was created and shipped with a multiplayer-only title in mind. So in 2001, when Return to Castle Wolfenstein was released, it included a single-player scripting system, which was then available in all subsequent licensing efforts so that other developers would have an easier way of creating single-player games using the engine. And that more or less sums up ID Tech 3. So we will move on to ID Tech 4. ID Tech 4 was built as a showcase using the game Doom 3. The primary innovation of ID Tech 4 was its use of entirely dynamic per-pixel lighting, whereas previously... Uh, the engine had relied primarily upon pre-calculated lighting. If you remember Doom 3 or you played it, one of the coolest things about it was the flashlight. Uh, Not the fact that you couldn't have the flashlight on and a weapon drawn at the same time, but more or less the way the flashlight 
dynamically lit the area and created shadows. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about dynamic per pixel lighting. They also made a lot of improvements to the sound rendering. Uh, the sound design of Doom 3 was actually excellent. You have all of this dynamic lighting available to you. You have this awesome sound design. And I think having those tools in their tool bag is what motivated them to make Doom 3 more or less a corridor shooter. That coupled with the fact that corridor shooters at the time were, you know, more or less the thing. Uh, one of the bigger criticisms that people had, including myself, of Doom 3 was absolute subpar enemy AI. You'd have these enemies that would, you know, jump out of the shadows and scare the shit out of you. And then they would more or less just run straight at you until you then shot them in the face. But despite any criticism or negative reviews, it was the most commercially successful game ID ever released. And to be honest, I can't blame them for trying something different. You have to keep innovating. You have to try new things. Otherwise, it becomes stale. So despite its flaws, it is a really good game. I, I would invite you to try it. It's, uh, it's not a brain buster, you know, but it's something fun that you can sit down and play. And like I said, if for no other reason than to appreciate the excellent sound and enemy design, uh, I would recommend playing it. But again, the AI was dumb as shit and it's just a corridor shooter. Getting back to that thing I talked about with the flashlight and the weapon, that was one of the biggest complaints on the forums when that game came out was you could only have a weapon out or you could only have the flashlight out. And since 90% of the game was pitch black, it became a giant pain in the ass. So years and years ago, somebody made a quote unquote duct tape mod where even if you had your weapon drawn, you could actually see with the flashlight. So if you're going to play it, enable that mod or get the BFG edition, which fixes that. Once again, the engine was licensed out with great success. Quake 4 in 2005 was released on that engine. Note that ID did not make Quake 4. It was created by Raven Software. Some other games released on the engine would be uh, the 2006 Prey by Human Head Studios, which was fantastic, by the way. Uh, it was unlike any other FPS that I ever played. Had an interesting story, nice visuals, and it had some interesting game mechanics. Splash Damages... Enemy Territory Quake Wars from 2007 and Brink from 2011 was actually built on ID Tech 4. So, moving on, let's talk about ID Tech 5 because there's a lot to talk about, both good and bad. The engine was first shown in 2007, but it didn't actually appear until 2011 with the release of Rage. And it's worth mentioning that Rage was ID's first game in seven years. Because remember, Doom 3 was released in 2004, and we didn't have another game direct from ID until 2011. The initial demonstration of the engine featured 20 gigabytes of texture data. And this is where Carmack introduced the concept of mega textures. And mega textures basically supported resolutions of up to 128,000 by 128,000 pixels. To break this down a little further, typically what you see in games, even, even nowadays you can see that a lot of games use something called tiling, which is basically taking 
a texture and showing it over and over and over and over to cover a large area. If you get up to a high point and look down on the landscape, you can see tiling taking place in certain areas. It's something that's still used to this day. So Carmack's approach was, instead of tiling the same texture over and over and over, we can have much more variety in textures by using this mega texturing because what it allows you to do is have one gigantic texture that is uniquely drawn or uniquely created with no repetition. So it didn't quite work out as intended with this engine. There was some serious performance issues and things like this, but the concept was solid. And I can't give you the URL right now, but there was somebody I found on Reddit that did an amazing breakdown of exactly how mega texturing works and even had some really good pictures for examples. So what I'm going to do is go in the show notes on my website and I'll have a link to that and you can check it out and you can see it with your own eyes. It's really interesting. Now, one of the biggest issues with ID Tech 5 was, well, not just ID Tech 5, but with Rage in particular, which was meant to be a showcase for what ID Tech 5 could do was the game was released on PS3 and the Xbox 360 as well. Yes, this is a PC gaming podcast and, you know, I don't want to start some toxic discussion about how much consoles suck, but there is absolutely no denying that the fact that this game was released on consoles as well as PC seriously hindered the performance of the game and the visuals of the game upon release. Why is this? Well, when the game was released for the Xbox 360, there was a limit to how much data they could ship it with. They absolutely wanted the game to fit on no more than two discs. So they more or less had an around an eight gig limit. Tim Willis stated that originally they planned on having these five large wasteland areas to explore that were all connected. But when they realized some of the different constraints that they had to operate within, they had to actually cut the five planned areas down to just two. Now, admittedly, those two contained a lot of the variation that was meant to appear in the five areas, but there's no denying that the overall size and complexity of the game was cut down in order to hit this this uh, storage and memory limit of the Xbox 360. With the PC version, however, there is a config file that you can create that will allow you to unlock the higher res textures for the game. Because when the game shipped and you played it on the PC, a lot of the textures, even though it used this quote unquote mega texturing, a lot of the textures were incredibly muddy and low res and people couldn't really understand why. And in addition to that, not only were the textures muddy, but there was constant hitching and skipping with the engine. The, the release on PC was a complete mess, more or less. I remember when it came out, jumping into it, I think I went 30 minutes or so into it and I turned it off and I didn't return to it until just this past year because of all the issues. Now, what renewed my interest in Rage, again, I'm going to stray off the path of the engines themselves and the history of ID Tech for a second, was I found this YouTube video from a guy who was showing what Rage looked like when you unlocked the highest resolution textures using this config tweak. And 
I had to admit that it was a huge improvement. And not only that, but now that video cards exist with 6, 8, 12 gigs of VRAM, you can also adjust the amount of memory that these textures will use. So in, in, in doing so, the game runs so much more smoothly and the textures look a whole lot better, noticeably better and noticeably more detailed. So after I saw this video of this guy doing this, I decided to do it for myself and I wanted to play through the game start to finish. So let me just take a minute and talk about Rage because despite what I said about the game being hindered due to the multi-platform release, it's still worth playing. I had some issues with the game. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff is is nitpick stuff, but l- let me just tell you some of these issues and then you decide for yourself if a lot of these are due to restrictions that consoles might have placed on development. Now, if I killed an enemy and that enemy had a specific weapon that maybe I wanted to use, the weapon would disappear if the enemy dropped it. Like it would hit the floor and then it would just disappear. So I wasn't able to actually pick up any of those weapons. Even though the environment, the the post-apocalyptic environment was, was beautiful and immersive, it was just a huge backdrop to what was essentially a linear game masquerading as something much larger. Um, in the distance, you'd see all of these buildings and you would see this incredible landscape and you, you couldn't get to any of it. Probably 90% of the doors and buildings that you come across in this game, you can't access. You can't open the doors. You can't break them down. You can't do anything. And the exploration was incredibly limited. It's one thing to have a linear game that allows for at least a little bit of exploration that maybe is rewarded by, you know, a special weapon or or something like that. But to have a game that is that linear with no exploration was, was just incredibly weak in my opinion. Uh, you would return to the same areas multiple times, which was something that bothered me. Um, spoiler alert. If you're going to play the game, don't listen to what I'm about to say, but one of the areas that I went through that I actually really enjoyed going through, I had to actually go back through, but in the opposite direction. It was incredibly lazy design, and it was just a huge letdown after going through this, what to me was a a well-designed area with some interesting enemy encounters, and then just to turn around and go back the exact same way I came, it just, it took the wind right out of my sails, let me tell you. And and having said that, it it was it was a chore, you know. Going through the one way was enjoyable, but then when I realized I had to turn and go back the other way, it was just a chore. And one of the big selling points of this game, when they talked about it, was, oh well, it's a first person, open world game, and you get to all these different interconnected areas through driving, and the driving has a fair amount of combat as well. So it, it it sure as hell didn't live up to all of that because in my opinion, yes, you could get in this vehicle and you could drive from point A to point B, but you know most of the time it involved just driving down a narrow path between two canyons and shooting a couple enemies and then getting to the next linear section. It really wasn't open world in any sense of the word as far as I'm concerned. Now, I've talked a lot just then about what I didn't like. So let me tell you what I actually did like. 
I think it goes without saying, look, it's an ID tech game. The gunplay was fantastic. I, I really liked the gunplay. And I thought that the enemy design was done quite well also. Uh, all of the models, really, whether it was an enemy or it was an AI companion or it was just a character in the story, the character models were just absolutely fantastic. I just got done bitching about the shitty AI in Doom 3. Well, you know what? The AI in Rage was a huge step forward. The enemies would aggressively flank you, and a lot of them had these maneuvers where they would they would uh, roll and they would flip, jump from rafter to rafter above you. So at least there were some interesting move sets that the enemies had that you had to contend with. And, you know, there were some sections in the game that were really standout. Uh, again, possible spoiler, but one of the areas that I liked the most was there's this section where you have to actually go through something called, I think it was the Mutant Bash TV show. And basically what it was, was it was a game show where you had to shoot your way through these three or four different arenas with a boss fight at the end. And it was really funny how it was set up because it really was set up like The Price is Right or something like that. And the game show host was a really well-designed character. So that was one of the sections that I really appreciated the most and I have to give them credit for. So long story short, obviously I had some issues with the game, but at the same time, there was a lot of things to really like about the game. I think that it's definitely something that you should pick up and play through at least once. It's always on sale. Every time there's a Steam sale, it's four bucks, five bucks, and it's totally worth that. Buy the game, Google the Rage Texture Unlock configuration. It just involves you modifying one file. You'll get the fully unlocked textures with the best possible graphics, and I think you should play through it. And let me know what you think about it, because even though it failed on a lot of fronts and it was a letdown in many ways, you can kind of see the the big picture with that game. You can, you can play it. And even though it's disappointing in a lot of ways, you can see what it was that they intended to create, but fell short of. And I will leave it up to you to decide whether it was consoles and multi-platform release that kind of held the game back or if maybe it was just a lack of effort on their part, but I leave it up to you to decide. I know how I feel about it, but despite all that, give it a shot. And despite any shortcomings with ID Tech 5 or issues with Rage, the engine went on to be used with some amazing games. You've heard me talk about Wolfenstein The New Order on the previous podcast and how much I enjoyed that. That was built on ID Tech 5. Um, that was Machine Games that made that. And The Evil Within was also built on ID Tech 5, both games that I enjoyed. Uh, they're excellent examples of what the tech can do, and I think they were a glimpse at the future. After those games came out, and I played them, and I enjoyed them, when I heard that Doom was coming out in 2016, it made me hopeful. Because I saw what the engine was capable of, with some modifications and some improvements, so I was very much looking forward to Doom coming out. Now, ID Tech 6 and Doom 2016 are serious milestones for the engine as well as ID software. 
As a lot of you know, John Carmack left ID in 2014. He went on to work at Oculus to get his hands into VR. And to replace him, they hired somebody called uh, Tiago Souza. I don't know if I'm butchering his name or not, but that's his name. I took a look at his LinkedIn profile. He was hired as the lead renderer and programmer for um, ID Software. He was previously with Crytek for 10 years. He worked on Crisis 1, Crisis 2, Crisis 3, Rise, and Warface. So as you can imagine, coming from a company like Crytek that's known for their insane visuals with their engines, it was a good move on the part of ID Software. Under the direction of Mr. Souza, they worked a lot on their dynamic reflections and shadows. In ID Tech 6, they added a physically based shading, which was a huge addition to the engine that basically allowed for consistency, uh, lighting consistency in environments that had a lot of complex lighting and or shading. Um, think of a room with a lot of different objects, with a lot of different textures, with multiple light sources, some bright, some dim, that allowed for a more believable environment as it relates to lighting and shadows. So that was a huge addition. Uh, mega textures are still used, but uh, him and his team basically uh, rebuilt the process by which they are loaded, which simplified it. And it allowed for faster loading in and out of memory with these different mega textures. Uh, those improvements can be seen in Doom. There is almost no pop-in whatsoever. I think the only pop-in I ever saw was when fast-switching a weapon, when I first loaded up the game, I would get, um, just for a brief millisecond, a muddy weapon texture and then the full texture. And then uh, after a subsequent update, that was eliminated also. So they did a fantastic job optimizing the mega texture process. And it's also worth noting that this game is a multi-platform game, just like Rage, I have to admit, I was a little bit nervous leading up to the release because there was a whole lot of console footage, not a whole lot of PC footage, but I think it was maybe a week before it released. There was a uh, NVIDIA event where they showed the game running on a GTX 1080 with somebody playing the game actually using a keyboard and mouse. And once I saw that video, all of my concerns completely disappeared. The game looked amazing. It ran beautifully, and the guy playing it with a keyboard and mouse was playing Doom the way it was meant to be played. A lot of twitch shots, fast weapon switching, jumping all over the place. It completely reinvigorated my interest after seeing months and months of console footage. So that's when I knew that we were really in for a treat. And it's also worth noting that uh, Tiago was responsible for bringing Crisis 1 to the console, and although when you put the Xbox 360 version next to the PC version, you can't really make much of a comparison, it doesn't negate the fact that he was able to pull it off. So he obviously had some direction and he obviously had some talent when it came to working within the constraints of a console. And that is reflected in the Doom release. And last but not least, don't forget that Doom also introduced us to what was possible with Vulcan. The game is OpenGL by default, but you can also switch to the Vulcan render, which 
in a lot of cases, especially if you're running an AMD graphics card, has some noticeable performance improvements. Now, I'll read to you a quote from ID Software regarding Vulkan and why they chose it as an alternative API to DirectX 12. Quote, We chose Vulkan because it allows us to support Windows 7 and 8, which still have a significant market share and would be excluded with DirectX 12. On top of that, Vulkan has an extension mechanism that allows us to work very closely with AMD, NVIDIA, and Intel to do very specific optimizations for each hardware, end quote. And in addition, Vulkan also allows you to easily or more easily release a game on the Linux platform as well. It was just a good choice, and up until that point, I don't think there was really a big AAA game that took advantage of Vulkan the way Doom did. So I have to give credit to ID, but for choosing Vulkan, because I think it's going to push a lot of developers toward looking at that as a viable alternative to DirectX 12, um, taking those advantages into consideration. I've gone on for 30, 35 minutes about just how important the genius of John Carmack was getting the company from point A to point B. But I think around the time that raid shipped, I think Carmack just kind of mentally checked out, which happens, you know, after however many years working within the same IPs and on the same engines and, you know, trying to advance things in somewhat of a linear path. He, I think he just got tired of it. I think his heart wasn't in it anymore. And you know what? That's fine because I see it all the time in, in my professional life, you know, in, uh, in a lot of corporations, there's a person that has this amazing idea and they start this new and innovative company and they are the best person on earth from taking things from A to B, from idea to execution. But guess what? There comes a time when they run out of ideas or they run out of passion and they're just not the right person to take things from B to C. And I think with everything that's happened in the past couple years with the advancements in the ID Tech Engine and the release of, say, Wolfenstein and Evil Within and now the new Doom. What you're seeing is new people at the helm, the right people steering the ship to get it from B to C. Thank you, John Carmack, for giving us what you gave us. Thank you, John Romero. Thank you, ID Software, for going from A to B. Now we've got all this fresh young talent that's going to take us from B to C and C to D, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what you're seeing now. To kind of close out the discussion about ID software and ID tech, I want to talk a little bit about what we can expect in the future. With all these new exciting things that are coming to the engine and all of these promising IPs that are being talked about, what do we have to look forward to? What's in store for us? Well, I think the first thing to talk about is Dishonored 2, which is coming out, I think, a couple weeks from the day that I'm recording this podcast. Uh, Previously, the first Dishonored ran on Unreal Engine 3, but Arcane Studios is owned by ZeniMax. ZeniMax owns Bethesda and ID Software and Battlecry Studios and Machine Games, etc., etc., and they are using the ID Tech Engine for a lot of their uh, IPs. So what they're doing is they're taking ID Tech 5 and Arcane is modifying the engine slightly 
and calling it the void engine. And that's what they're using for Dishonored 2. So I think we have some fantastic visuals in store for us with Dishonored 2. And as much as I like Dishonored, you know, by the time it came out, Unreal Engine 3 was already kind of long in the tooth, I felt. And thankfully the game was stylized, so it didn't really stand out too much. But I think that the move to a modified ID Tech 5 was the right decision to make. And I think that the visuals are going to be a huge step above what we saw in the original Dishonored. So that's something that I'm for sure picking up and that I'm really looking forward to playing. Now, I thought for sure that the Prey reboot that's coming out next year would be on ID Tech but uh, because Bethesda was publishing it. But unfortunately, it's not on ID Tech. That's actually going to be running on the CryEngine. Looking at the previews, I mean, it looks interesting. It's not the uh, Bounty Hunter Prey continuation that we saw at E3 maybe four years ago. They've just kind of started over with this new IP and they're just slapping the name Prey on it, which is a little bit disappointing. But from the previews I've seen, it looks interesting and it's CryEngine, so it'll look good. But as it relates to our discussion about ID Tech, there's really not much more to say. So moving on, something that I'm really looking forward to is Quake Champions. That has been confirmed to be a hybrid of ID Tech 6 and the Cyber Engine. Uh, Cyber is the company that um, has been hired to actually do the bulk of the work on Quake Champions. Now, I've heard claims that this this so-called hybrid of ID Tech 6 and Cyber, they're saying that they've rewritten something like 80 or 90% of the engine. I'm not sure I believe that. It takes years and years to create a game engine. So to take something like ID Tech 6 and say, hey, this is fantastic, but we're going to rewrite 90%, that just, that just doesn't add up to me. I think that what we're going to see with QuakeCon is more or less ID Tech 6. The preview that they've released that you can find on YouTube, which was the gameplay reveal, uh, it looks really good. I was hoping for a higher resolution video. I was hoping for some direct capture that maybe we could look at, but you know, it is what it is for now. I'm looking forward to a lot more information about that because obviously I'm a huge Quake fan. We talked about it for quite a while on this podcast, so I'm pumped for it. Yes, they're making changes to the game. No, it's not going to be a MOBA. You know, they're just going to have one special ability per character, but they're promising that at the core of everything is Quake through and through. Quake 3 Arena style gameplay with these uh, unique abilities added in. I'm not going to trash it until I play it. Uh, so for now, I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to seeing what they can do with the IP. One more ID Tech game that we can look forward to in the near future is a new Wolfenstein. Uh, Bethesda did a little bit of a tease when they kicked off their E3 2016 press briefing. Uh, on the screen, it showed a PC boot-up sequence that was MS-DOS era. And um, there was a list of games that were on the screen. And it listed uh, Wolfenstein The New Order, and it listed Wolfenstein The Old Blood. And then below that, it, all, it listed uh, The New Colossus. And the New Colossus is the uh, title of a poem that was written, or excuse me, that was read at the end of 
the new order. And since then, the person that did the voice acting for BJ in the newer Wolfenstein games, I, f- I forget his name, but he more or less confirmed a week or two ago that they are currently working on another game. Surely that will be built on ID Tech 6. And I thought the new order and the old blood looked fantastic. I thought Doom looked that much better. So I can only imagine what a new Wolfenstein will look like built on the newest iteration of ID Tech. I think that's going to be amazing. So I'm really looking forward to some more information about that. I was hoping we'd hear more by now, but unfortunately, they're keeping silent on that for the time being. I also think that um, you're going to see a little bit of VR stuff come out of ID Software soon. They had a Doom VR tech demo at E3 2016 that people said was you know, experimental and a little bit rough, but very impressive graphically and very immersive. I think that would be incredible. Uh, I'm the owner of a Vive. And, you know, so far, a lot of the games, some of them have been really interesting. Some of them I've really enjoyed. A lot of them are just incredibly rough indie games. So I'm really waiting for that kick-ass AAA title to hit the Vive. And Valve doesn't seem to be in much of a hurry to make a title for the hardware that they helped co-develop. So I think that would be one of the next best things if I could get Doom VR, but I'm certainly not holding my breath for that. But as far as things that we know about and things that have been talked about or seen, that pretty much covers it for the next year, I think. You've got Dishonored 2, you've got Quake Champions, you've got a new Wolfenstein next year, most likely or hopefully, and possibly a Doom VR tech demo at at the least this coming year. Now we're getting kind of long on time here and there's a few rants that I want to go through at the very end about some, some games that have released recently and some recent announcements. So I do have a closing about ID tech that I have prepared that I want to share with you. And it goes something like this. ID is a company that in my opinion silenced all of the naysayers and all those who said that the glory days of ID software were behind them. Yes, they had some very trying times that led to their most diehard fans to doubt their ability to deliver cutting-edge products and experiences. Doom 3 was criticized for its linear gameplay style and questionable design choices. Anger was directed at them when Rage, a game with insane potential, appeared to be compromised due to console requirements and restrictions. Texture pop-in through mega textures, horrible glass door reviews online about the work environment at ID, and leaked Doom 4 artwork, followed up by rumors of cancellation and the departure of Carmack, all of these things would indicate that our one of our most beloved studios was on the brink. Well, not only is ID back, but they are back in a big way. Doom reminded us of how great a fast-paced, classic, in-your-face FPS could be, and it accomplished that task with incredible graphics and smooth gameplay. So not only did ID have the balls to release a game that is almost the exact antithesis of the tired modern FPS design, but they also offered it with your choice of OpenGL or Vulkan graphics API. ID Tech 6 has proven that one must not have to sacrifice high graphical fidelity for high frame rates, and has put the ID Tech engine back in the same company as Unreal Engine 4, CryEngine, and Frostbite. ID has shown that new leadership, new perspectives, and fresh ideas 
can bring about some of the greatest advancements to one's products. And just because a specific person or persons were able to bring a company from A to B, that person is not necessarily the right person to drive the company from B to C. To be honest, everybody, I think the best days for ID tech and ID software are yet to come. And I'm really looking forward to what the future brings. And that more or less concludes everything that I have to say about ID software and ID tech for today. I think I've gone on long enough about that. So for now, I just want to do a couple quick rants. Um, I purchased Gears of War 4 through the uh, Windows Store on Windows 10. Unlike some people, I, I, I really didn't have any issues with the buying experience or downloading or installing the game. I know a lot of people had issues with that. It went smooth for me. I bought it not because I think Gears of War has incredibly deep gameplay. I know what to expect with Gears. I bought it because it is built on Unreal Engine 4 and it is DirectX 12 and it's probably one of the first big budget AAA DirectX 12 titles uh, with that type of graphical fidelity. I, I bought it quite simply because it had a kick-ass benchmarking tool in it. It looked amazing. And everybody needs a mindless shooter once in a while. You know, sometimes I get incredibly frustrated with Counter-Strike or insert game here. And I just want something I can just play and not necessarily have to, to think about. So that's my guilty pleasure. It runs fantastic on my rig. I think it looks amazing. I love the physics in the game. There's some uh, crazy weather patterns in the game that affect the environment it's it's really worth picking up. I don't know if uh, it's worth 60 bucks, but it, it's definitely worth picking up if you've got a capable rig. Uh, I'm also messing around with Battlefield 1 a little bit. Um, I have Origin Access, so I was able to play 10 hours of the game included with my $5 a month subscription. Um, I don't know if that's still available, but if you're kind of on the fence with the game, 5 bucks to play 10 hours... You know, it's it's enough to know whether or not you want it or not. I played a lot of Battlefield 4 when it came out. I think I put 400 hours into that, maybe 500 hours into that. Battlefield 1, in my opinion, is just a whole lot more of the same. I'm not saying it's a bad game. I think it's a fantastic game. And I think it's an improvement on 4. But it's it doesn't change the fact that it is more of the same. If you're looking for radically different gameplay, you're not going to get it. But what you are going to get is some damn pretty frostbite graphics and some pretty cool melee weapons, I can tell you that. The single-player campaign, they talked a lot about it and how it was much better than Battlefield 3 or 4's campaign. I played through the majority of the campaign, or as much as it would allow me to. I had some fun with it, but it's it's really not a vast improvement over what they've done previously. Uh, entertaining, yes. Groundbreaking, no. If I didn't have such a large backlog of other things to play, then maybe I would play it more, but it's just not taking priority for me at the moment. Now, as I'm recording this, I believe Titanfall 2 will be releasing any day. I think it's tomorrow it releases. Now, uh, the first Titanfall, you know, that, that kind of died off rather quickly, and the single player wasn't much of a campaign at all. Uh, it was, it was, Really disappointing, in my opinion. Two looks like it's shaping up to be uh, a huge improvement in every way possible. 
Uh, like I said, I have a huge backlog, so I don't know if I'm just going to jump right into it or if I'm going to wait a while. But from what I'm seeing from early reviews, the single player campaign appears to be very well made and very immersive. I haven't read a lot of the reviews all the way through because I don't necessarily want to subject myself to spoilers. But the fact that it has a good single player campaign piques my interest. I think I'll wait for a little bit of a price drop on that and then jump into that once I've finished my backlog. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys are excited for Titanfall 2. If you have any opinions on the single player game, I'd love to hear them. As far as games go, one last thing I just want to bitch and moan about is, you know, as you know, Rockstar recently announced Red Dead Redemption 2. And all I hear about is how amazing the first game was. I don't own a console, so I haven't played Red Dead Redemption, but you know, according to the internet, it's it's like the greatest thing that was ever made. So it piqued my interest when I saw that they were making a Red Dead Redemption 2, but unsurprisingly, they have not yet announced a PC version. And even though GTA 5 was released on the PC, and even though it was a solid, well-optimized release, what did it come, like two years after the fact? I wouldn't be surprised if they did the exact same thing with this. You know, I'm of the attitude right now where it's more or less like, you know, wake me up in two years and let me know how it is and I'll consider buying it. You know, I was a little bit pumped because I was like, hey, they're making a new game. They released GTA 5 on the PC. Maybe they'll do some kind of a simultaneous release. But as it turns out, that was just wishful thinking and I should have known better. So not much more to say about that. We'll just have to see how it all plays out. The very last thing I want to talk about is... A little bit of hardware. I'm starting my one of my new builds. I'm actually building two rigs. I'm building a mini ITX build so that I have something that's easy to transport. And I'm also building another full-size rig that will be liquid-cooled with hard acrylic tubing and all that type of thing. I don't like moving those rigs around a lot. I like building them. I like them being my main rig at home. But what a pain in the ass it is to transport. So I'm putting together this mini ITX rig that I can hook my 144 hertz monitor up to my 27 inch. And I'll probably use that for mostly Counter-Strike or other Twitch shooters. And then my main rig will be on my X34 ultra wide for single player gaming mostly. The only reason I bring this up is because... In looking for parts, I'm always trying to find the best deals. And of course, there's always PC Part Picker where you can look for the part that you want and set up an email notification if the part drops below a certain price. But that's not always 100% reliable in my experience. And in every episode, I want to try and point you to something on the internet related to gaming that you might not be aware of. I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware of what I'm about to say, but for those of you that are not you really need to utilize Reddit. There's a subreddit that is uh, build a PC sales. That's basically it. It's slash build a PC sales. And I keep this open during the day, even when I'm at work and I'll refresh it maybe every couple of hours. And if you sort it by what's new, you can really catch some amazing deals. So check that out if you're looking for new parts if you're looking for used parts, I would recommend the subreddit hardware swap slash hardware swap. This is where everybody posts their used components. And in fact, this mini ITX rig that I'm building, 
I'm buying some new parts to put that together. But since I'm more or less trying to put that together on a budget because I'm building the other uh, full-size rig, I got a mini ITX board, a 6700K, and 16 gigs of DDR4 as a package deal on here. They look beautiful. They're like new. The price was unbeatable. And people have trade reputation on here. So, you know, if somebody's got more than three or four successful trades or they have a heatware account, you can buy with confidence and you can buy knowing that you're going to get what it is that you ordered. So I'll put links to both of these in the show notes as well. I invite you to check both out. They really come in handy when you're looking for new or used PC parts. So that concludes episode two of Digital Zenith. It is Friday afternoon. I am going to watch the Pro League CSGO tournament that's going on this weekend. And I'm going to play some Counter-Strike. And I'm going to finish up Gears of War 4. And I'm going to do a whole lot of other things. Some that are adult and some that are productive and some that are not. I hope that you have a great day. And again, I thank you so much for listening. As I said, I respect your time. And I hope that you have found the podcast worthwhile. Keep an eye out for the next podcast. As I said in my previous cast, that one is going to be entitled The Greatest Games That Were Never Made. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day.